Good morning. Good morning, ASLHers. Welcome to Kansas City. Yes. Good. Thank you. Not too late in the bar last night, right? Talking with all your friends. Good morning. We're all delighted to be in Kansas City for this annual meeting of the American Association for State and Local History, which of course we shorten to AASLH. And then we say that as fast as we can, SLH. My husband always says AASLH. ASLH's mission, as you all know, is to provide leadership and support to all of us, those of us who are working in the field of state and local history, so in our work to make the past more meaningful for and telling the stories of all Americans. And it's that work and search for meaning that brings us here to Kansas City with this meeting theme of truth or consequences. A broad theme, but a very relevant theme, something that we can all hang our thoughts and ideas on as we go into these few days of sessions. I'm Catherine Kane. I am the chair of the ASLH Council, and I can tell you that your council's been hard at work with the amazing staff of ASLH building uh, the future for our strong organization. I can tell you that ASLH is stable and reaching it and taking its leadership position at the national table with our colleague organizations, uh, bringing the perspective of state and local history to work across the country. I want to say a big thank you to council members. Any council members here, present or former, please stand. Let us see you. This is a great group, and of course, you all know John Dictal, ASLH's CEO, and the fabulous staff. So please say thank you to them when you interact with them for their great work. So we're going to have a few comments this morning from important people before our fabulous keynote speaker, Dan Snow. And I have the honor of introducing uh, Matt Naylor, who has been local arrangements host, co-host for this meeting. Matt's the president and CEO of the internationally acclaimed National World War I Museum and Memorial here in Kansas City. He's co-chair of this conference, uh, host committee, as I said, helping mobilize dozens of other key volunteers and organizations across the city and region to host us for several days of tours, workshops, sessions, and special events. Um, Matt and the entire uh, World War I Museum staff will be hosting us tonight, so if you don't have your tickets, see if there are any left. It's going to be fun. Under Matt Naylor's leadership, the National World War I Museum has achieved unprecedented success, breaking records for attendance, educational, community event participation, website traffic, media impressions. In his first three years as CEO from 2013 to 16, attendance rose more than 50%. Can you guys beat that? In July 2015, he was appointed to the United States World War I Centennial Commission 
as a nonprofit professional of long and international experience and one of the primary drivers of the uh, 100th anniversary commemorations for World War I, it's absolutely fitting that he introduce uh, uh, the rest of the program. So Matt, please join me. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the host committee, I'm really pleased to welcome you here to Kansas City. And like many of you, I'm not from around here. I've traveled to great cities across the globe, and I've lived in a few of them. And 16 years ago, I found myself moving here with my family to Kansas City, and I can tell you it's a great place. Terrific cultural amenities, low loads of live music and independent restaurants, world-class museums, and a rich history it's a home to entrepreneurs and to innovative businesses, and we won the World Series in 2015. <laughs> and that parade celebration, it was remarkable to see what the city estimates to be more than 800,000 people jammed under the front lawn of the National World War I Museum and Memorial and surrounding streets. We stayed open that day. The challenge was how do we weave ourselves into the narrative of that memory? seven and a half thousand people came into the museum and I can testify that seven and a half thousand people had their best bathroom experience of the day. <laughs> so if you have time to explore the city and take some time to do that, I think that you'll really love it. Every great city needs solid, confident and assertive political leadership. I'm pleased that this city has had that for the last seven years Kansas City has endured the aspirational leadership of Mayor Sly James. A Marine in the 1970s, attorney and leader in the legal sector, Mayor James was elected in 2011 and has achieved a great deal. One focus of his has been advocating for reading proficiency for school children, which makes our support here at the AASLH annual meeting for literary, literacy KC to assist their Let's Read program even more personal to him. Of the many achievements under Mayor James' leadership, one especially will be remembered, the creation of the Kansas City streetcar, an undisputed success for the city. And we at the National World War I Museum and Memorial count Mayor James as a colleague, helping us to take the energy and opportunity of the global commemoration of World War I to introduce new and diverse audiences, and to experience the power and impact of history. Always willing to accept our invitation or attend events, and with a door that's always open and welcoming, we have found him to be a friend and advocate for history and truth-telling. Mayor James was elected to his second term in June of 2015 with 87% of the vote. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Kansas City Mayor, Sly James. Thank you. I wanna thank Matt for that uh, overly generous uh, uh, introduction. He read it just like I wrote it left out that I often stand in for Denzel Washington and stunts, but can't have everything, right? Well, first of all, welcome to Kansas City. We're always great to see people come to Kansas City for conferences and meetings. 
to convene themselves and to collaborate and to share ideas. Uh, we consider ourselves to be a very innovative city, one that uh, really does value entrepreneurship and independent thought. And it's always great to have people here who have made a decision to come when you had so many other choices that you could have made. So welcome to our home, treat it as your own, and enjoy it. I do highly encourage you to take advantage of the World War I Museum, which I know at least last year was rated as one of the top five museums in the country by Yelp. Uh, it is indeed a magnificent museum uh, with tremendous leadership in Matt and his staff. And I think when you go there, you will be blown away and extremely impressed. Uh, we're always honored to have a group of individuals dedicated to telling local histories and to being storytellers uh, across the country come to Kansas City. Uh, your theme of truth or consequences should uh, resonate with us all, especially today when as a country we see a lot of our local, our national leaders trying to redefine what truth is. Uh, truth is an absolute in some respects and it is somewhat disturbing to be unsure about what we can believe and what is true and what is not. Here in Kansas City, while we've had a great deal of success, we're dealing with the consequences of our own community's truths. Uh, we have come a long way in Kansas City. We have done some tremendous things, and this is a city I love and have dedicated quite a bit of energy and time to. Um, we have completely revitalized our downtown. Uh, the truth of that is that Mayor Kay Barnes, when she was in office, took a huge political gamble with huge risks to get the ball rolling with the Sprint Center and the Power and Light District. And we have been able to capitalize on that and to keep that momentum going. Uh, we've increased our literacy rates, as Matt said. When I came in office in 2011, we had only 33.8% of our third graders reading proficiently. Now we're up to 54%. Uh, we, thank you. I, uh, I will be much happier to clap for that when we have reached our goal of 70% and beyond because every child that is denied an education be, uh, due to no fault of their own uh, is a tragic situation and one that uh, adults should be embarrassed about and we are the ones responsible for their lives and education, not them. Uh, we have also had some tremendous hard assets, our streetcar, our new downtown hotel, uh, two and a half billion dollars of development since 2012 in the downtown area, well, tons of housing. We've gone from 2,500 2, people living downtown in 2002 when I moved my offices from the plaza to here to about 26,000 now. So things are happening and we're very happy about that. Uh, we have uh, a history of some of the best jazz and barbecue. Uh, I, I, let me take that back. Some of the best jazz and the best barbecue. <laughs> I don't want anybody from Memphis or other places starting to think like they got a shot because you don't. Um, we have, uh, uh, we've started work on a, on a new airport terminal. Those of you who've flown in, I'm sure might be happy about that. Uh, we are proud of all of that, and uh, I really hope that you have an opportunity to explore those things and to spend all of your money here. Uh, 
but when we talk about truth and consequences, uh, and we're talking about history, I could very easily regale you with all of the great things that are going on currently, but the history of this city is such that it needs to be explored too. And the truth of the matter is, is that we still have a city that is far too segregated, far too separated, and far too divided by things that don't really matter. Race, color, gender, socioeconomics. In that respect, we're like a lot of cities. But this is our city, and you're here, and you're talking about truth, so I'm going to speak the truth to you. You can get in your car or vehicle and drive 10 miles or 10 minutes to the east and see a completely different situation where poverty still reigns, where the color is much darker, where children are in need of help and, and educational assets, and where we are trying to make a difference, but it is extremely slow moving to get there. You can go those 10 minutes in the vehicle and be in a zip code that has a 14.6 shorter year shorter lifespan than people who live right here in this area because of environmental factors, because of stress factors, because of food factors, because of all sorts of different things that are the vestiges of the history of this country and the history of this city. Truist Avenue, the traditional racial dividing line, still exists. Uh, it is different, however, because Operation Breakthrough, an organization founded by two nuns uh, who are now quite elderly, uh, who have dedicated their entire lives to rescuing poor children and their families, literally built a bridge across Truce from one of their buildings to the other. And in the new building, they have done things that were not previously heard of on Troost. They've set up a coding room. They've set up robotics. They have more room for quality pre-K. There are issues that we are trying to overcome that have been historically challenging. And that is one of the challenges we all have, right? To recognize the truth of our history and to build on it, not repeat it. And that's what we're trying to do here. We have an opportunity in Kansas City to make significant changes in how we address and treat one another. We recently started a race and equity project, uh, which is designed to, first of all, normalize the conversations about race and to show people that just because you talk about race doesn't make you a racist or an anti-racist. It just means that you want to talk about a problem in a way that is designed to help move the needle forward and help solve the problem. So we recognize our history, we recognize the truth of our history, and we recognize the consequences of our history, and we are addressing those things in a way that hopefully will change the current day so that the history of the children that we are trying to make sure are literate and have quality educations 10, 15, 20, 100 years from now have a different history. Because what we all, what do we all say, right? If you refuse to recognize the lessons of history, you're bound to repeat it. We have no desire to repeat it. What we do have a desire to do is to make sure that when folks like you come into town, that you understand that despite all of our problems, the good so far outweighs the bad, that we're still on the right side of the ledger. And that when you're in our city, that you are our guests and that we want to make sure that you are comfortable and respected in all ways. 
and that when you are in our city, as you look at all of our hard assets, you eat at our restaurants, you go to the museums, you see the good things that are going on, that you understand that the best asset that we have in this city are the people who live here. And that is the history of this city, one of Midwestern kindness, but in Kansas City, even beyond that. So welcome to our home. Enjoy it, take advantage of it, spend your money in it, and come back and see us again, even when you don't have a conference or an academic or a professional reason to do so because we love having you here. Thank you for being here and choosing us and, th and have a great day and have a great conference. Goodbye. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Good morning, everyone. I'm Tim Grove. I'm the program chair for this conference, and I would like to add my welcome to Kansas City and the 2018 conference. This is my third visit to Kansas City, Missouri. If you're looking to check Kansas off your state list, here's a tip. Um, you must choose the right bridge. Not all bridges across the Missouri River lead to Kansas. I learned the hard way. I was here a few years ago. I was short on time and thought I'd just drive across the river and say it was in Kansas, but I picked the wrong bridge. The river curves. Fortunately, last night I made it to the event in Kansas and really enjoyed it. Thank you to our host committee and chairs Matt and Mindy who have put together a really great program of events and tours. And a big, big thank you to the program committee. If you were on the program committee for this year and you're here, could you stand up, please? They get the job of sorting through all of the proposals, weighing all of them for creativity and for connection to theme and all of that. And it's, it's quite a job. And um, of course, the strongest program relies and is based on very strong and creative proposals. So I encourage you all to think about submitting a proposal for next year. I'd also like to thank those of you who brought books for the Kansas, the Casey Literary Literacy Drive. Um, giving books to, history books to kids should be something that warms all of our hearts. So that was a great idea. So thank you all who brought books. Two, of, two responsibilities of the program chair are to select a theme and to suggest speakers. Truth or consequences. The theme, of course, is ripped from the headlines. Truth is questioned every day. Who could have predicted how timely the topic would be this week? Um, our institutions are trusted by the public because we are truthful, or are we? Do we tell the whole truth? I'm hoping over the next few days we will have rich discussions about what defines truth and how we convey not only the complexity of our truth, but of our process in arriving at it. We are nearing the 100th anniversary of the armistice that ended the Great War. We are here in Kansas City, site of the National World War I Museum and Memorial, a memorial erected thanks to the generosity of the citizens of Kansas City, who I'm told raised $2.5 million in just 10 days. 
President Coolidge said at its dedication, the Liberty Memorial has not been raised to commemorate war and victory, but rather the results of war and victory, which are embodied in peace and liberty. He also called it one of the most elaborate and impressive memorials that adorn our country. As I considered speakers who could address World War I, I had been watching some videos online by Dan Snow, including one where he takes only two minutes to explain how World War I got started. Look it up, it's very impressive. Known as Britain's history guy, Dan is passionate about the past. I'm so pleased that Dan Snow agreed to cross the pond and join us to share his perspective. Born and raised in London, the great-great-grandson of Prime Minister David Lloyd George, Dan remembers spending every weekend of his childhood being taken to castles, battlefields, country houses, and churches. He grew up, earned a degree in history from Oxford, and has built a career making history engaging to the public. He produces and presents programs for the BBC and other networks. He started his own podcast, The History Hit, and now his own history network. Dan knows how to use social media to its fullest. He is currently touring the UK, presenting the program An Evening with the History Guy. Dan knows how to make history accessible and engaging to a broad audience. He believes in experiential history and taking his viewers along whether it's Operation Grand Canyon, a modern-day historical challenge, as it was called, to Operation Gold Rush, which followed the footsteps of the Klondike Gold Rush. Dan has flown World War II aircraft, been gassed, shoveled muck in a London sewer, and been trained as a sniper, among many other things, all in a day's work, pursuing the past and sharing it with his viewers. From his experiences in World War I trenches and elsewhere, Dan can not only offer us tips for making history, en and engage history engaging and accessible, but can offer an international perspective on truth or consequences. Please join me in welcoming Dan Snow. I can shout. Oh, there we go. There we go. Is that, what is it on there? Is that working on there? One, two, three. Okay. Okay. I'm just going to shout. Like I'm on the deck of HMS Victory in a storm. Um, now, there's a few of you standing at the back. I'd love to tell my mum it was standing room only, but there are a bunch of free seats at the front. So if you do want to come and rest your legs, there's, there's a whole bunch of seats down here. Um, I, uh, th thank you very much for that kind introduction, Tim. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. I can tell you I'm about 4 and 0 on barbecue meals since I've been here. That's pretty good. And that includes two breakfasts. Uh, I, uh, I, it's a great honor to be here. I stand before you today as a, a heavy user of institutions like yours. In fact, I had a brutalized childhood. We touched on it briefly there. Um, and, and, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a second. But and, and my career has taken me to historical sites archives, battlefields, ruins, museums, from some of the most, what it, the Norse Viking churches of Greenland to the tip of South America, um, from the battlefields of New Zealand, Anglo-Maori battlefields in New Zealand, up to 
the first emperor's tomb complex uh, in Xi'an in China. Uh, and so, so I'm, I'm obsessed with sites like yours. I visit them, I, 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 it's my mission in life to visit as many as I can. And that comes from my brutalized childhood. Every single Saturday morning when I was a kid, when other kids were going out and playing street hockey, or their UK equivalent, uh, I, my dad would just roar through the house, right, everyone get in the car! And we'd all just run down, my sisters and I would run down the stairs, and we'd get in the back of the little station wagon with the jerry cans of gas, you remember that, when that was all legal? I don't know if it was legal, but anyway, we were all piled in the back, no car seats, no seat belts, lying in the back, pulling faces at the other cars on the highway, beetling down this little car. Uh, and we went to, if you put a dot on my house, you could then, then draw a radius of 250 miles around that. I have been to every single <laughs> goddamn <laughs> medieval church, <laughs> castle, stately home, gallery, battlefield, uh, you name it. Uh, and I didn't enjoy it, to be absolutely honest with you. I'd much rather have been doing nice things. But then I just kind of got used to it. I got Stockholm Syndrome, everyone. <laughs> and now, I've got children of my own. <laughs> you know what we do every Saturday? Because <laughs> that's how generational abuse works, everybody. <laughs> Um, and so I, I, I look out and I'm very, uh, I am very excited to meet uh, some of the best practitioners and the kind of places that I spend my life at, both professionally and now personally as well. Um, uh, but I think I'd like to start thinking about history and thinking about truth. I want to start with a story not about a, a place, not about a historical site, but about a person. Uh, and it was a person I met while we were sitting on a dried up lava flow in the northeastern Congo. Her name was May, and she was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide and the appalling civil wars, civil war, and constant violence that has gone on rumbling on in the eastern Congo ever since that 1990s genocide in Rwanda, which she escaped from. She uh, witnessed the genocide. She escaped from it. I think we all know what that means. She was unwilling to talk too much about her experiences and, and the, uh, the, 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 the way in which she was able to avoid the fate of the rest of her family. Uh, she went, she joined a huge group of refugees that marched through the Congo looking for safety. And as you know, the crisis in Rwanda spilt over into the Congo and just led to a progressive collapse uh, in a very fragile Congolese society at the time. The fighting followed her. She witnessed incredible barbarity. She witnessed sickness. She witnessed uh, kids being abandoned. She witnessed everything that, that you can imagine. Uh, and she now lives in the Eastern Congo, and she has a job. She's carved out a, a role for herself. And that is, she works for Human Rights Watch. She's a local organizer. And she runs a network of women. And they walk from village to village, because there is no justice, no organized justice in, in the Northeast Congo. There is violence, particularly violence towards women. Uh, and, and there is no recourse. There's no what, police force, particularly, or, or system of courts. The, no rule of law. And so she's worked out, she does the only thing that she can do, which is she takes a pen and a piece of paper, and with this network of women, they, they walk out to villages and they take witness statements from usually young women who have been subjected to, to war crimes. Because there's nothing else they can do. She says she just wants to just give them the dignity of writing down their experiences. Those are then gathered up, and then she makes sure a copy is saved in country, and then a copy is saved out. She actually sends it off uh, to Europe. 
And, and talking to her, I had this transformation. I had this very incredibly poignant moment of just realizing what the heck history is for, what we're all, what we're all doing here. And that is that when the people that have committed those crimes are not going to be caught. They'll never be brought before justice in this life. But when historians come back and ask what happened in the Eastern Congo, those women will not be anonymous. They will not be forgotten. They will not be statistic. They will, their words, their experiences will be remembered. They will be enshrined on those pieces of paper in those archives. So that when the questions are asked about what happened there, history will be able to learn. They will have an element of justice. Sadly, not in this life, but many years down the road. And it just reminded me, she's a she is the best historian ever met. History is, and what we're all doing is you write down the stuff we've done, the bad stuff and the good stuff. And then future generations can read that and they can avoid the bad stuff and emulate the good stuff. And May taught me that. And I think your organizations, and I think in a small way, the, the, the books or the TV or the podcast, what I try and work on is an example of that. And that goes right back to the sort of Thucydides and Herodotus, those original writers of history. It's about, it's about preserving the actions of th things that have happened in the past so that they may act both as a warning and as inspiration to future generations. Uh, and we need history. I don't know about you, but I, did, I, I, was, uh, I was a student in the 90s. The 90s were a funny old time. Francis Fukuyama, the army, it was the end of history. Do you remember that? No one knew history anymore because the, we'd won. The West, Western liberal, everything was sorted. No more problems. Uh, and uh, communism was gone. China was joining the WTO. Everything was just fine. Uh, liberal democracy had triumphed. And everyone said to me, I, 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 at the time, they're like, why are you going to do history? I mean, you know, no point. Well, people don't ask me that anymore. <laughs> in fact, history is back in a big way. And we are living through historic times. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but we are living through historic times, as you all know. You only need to look at what's going on as we speak in the Senate uh, um, right now. Um, in, uh, we have a chief executive here in, in the US. I'm sure you'll be familiar with him. In June and July, the Washington Post calculated he averaged 16 false claims a day. Uh, I, I'm, but Britain is not perfect. There's nothing you guys hate more rightly than smug Brits telling you how... Uh, <laughs> I'm aware of that. I'm aware of that. So when you guys elected Trump, we said, hold my beer. <laughs> and we voted for Brexit. And Brexit was largely... The, it was a huge influencing factor. It was a gigantic bust with a provable, demonstrable falsehood that drove around the country and, uh, and influenced people to vote for Brexit. So we are engulfed by fake news, we're engulfed by lies. Uh, and, and, it's, and there are serious consequences for individuals, of course, as well as society. On the 4th of December at 3 p.m., on the 4th of December 2016, a 28-year-old churchgoer called Edward Edgar Madison Welch strapped a Colt 38 to his waist. He put a bandana of ammunition around his torso and he walked into Comet Ping Pong in Washington, D.C., carrying a semi-automatic rifle. He was looking for a pedophile ring, and 45 minutes later, having found no evidence at all of that pedophile ring, he was in custody and is now in prison. He had a brutal uh, collision with truth, or the lack thereof, and he is now living with the consequences of that. And this is going on all over society. It's people, we're in, we're in, as you guys know, we're in, we have a... Here we go. We're going to tweak this. Do an on-off. 
Right. There we go. And that's where you guys come in. This is where you guys come in. You are the most trusted. This room, it's pretty important. I'm excited to be here because this room contains the most trusted people in our society. 2018 poll showed that history museums and sites are more trusted than the internet. Well, it's a pretty low bar, but well done. <laughs> teachers, teachers, which is good. And textbooks. 80% uh, of people said that history museums are considered trustworthy. Higher than family members, which is amazing. <laughs> College professors, good work. And even the movies. <laughs> I mean, I don't believe that last one. Um, and because I think, and this reminds me of my conversation made in, in the Congo, you are the places, you are the venue, you are where people can go and interact with those stories of our past and uh, with what has happened. And sometimes I don't even like using the word history. I mean, I'm a history guy, I love history, of course. It runs through, through my core. But, but, but sometimes people think history is, is, is Henry VIII uh, and, and people walking around with stupid ruffs around their neck. And, but, but it's important to remember what history is. It's what has happened to all of us in the past. Everything that's happened to us. And you're, you are the venues where people can go and interact with that. You, therefore, are the place where we go and talk, where we can interrogate our own memories. Um, and, and I think that, as with individuals, the, the memories, society's memory is, is hugely determinative. It encourages us. It motivates us. Uh, it encourages us, for example, as individuals, to avoid painful repeats of things that didn't go very well in the past. Uh, to seek and emulate the satisfying experience I had in the past. So it warns you of things that didn't go right before, like um, dating crazy young men in Yale, uh, or starting land wars in Asia. Um, but it does uh, encourage us to, to repeat things that have worked before, and I think that, that is, uh, that is uh, like we've just heard, literacy. We know teaching young people how to read benefits them and benefits everyone in our society as the mayor just so inspirationally talk about, talked about. Um, let's get, I'd like to give some historical examples because I'm among friends here, so uh, I know I can just geek on a bit about this. Um, history, obviously, because everything that's ever happened is full of examples of fake news and how it's been overcome in the past and the consequences of that falsehood. And, and I think that's something fun to talk about now briefly. In the 1640s, let's go way back, 1640s and 50s, um, that joyful time when we were still one big happy family before those seditious traitors <laughs> led you guys down the garden path, without whom none of us would be in this mess today. Um, the <laughs> uh, there was, in the 1640s, there was the first giant explosion of fake news, which, which was a result of technology, the printing press, literacy. Suddenly, people had ability to produce material, and, and, and there were no gatekeepers anymore. Uh, in 1641, the English government lifted the ban on newspapers, effectively, and within four years, there were 7,000 new newspapers in circulation. It was mind-blowing. Uh, and there was some serious fake news, guys. You think it's bad today. William Lilly's best-selling Prophecy of the White King in 1644 predicted the downfall and defeat of Charles I, sold 1,800 copies in three days, and it's completely deranged. It's gibberish, I'll tell you that. Um, and, and an MP at the time, Member of Parliament, said his writings have kept up the spirits of the soldiers and honest people of the realm and many of us Parliament men. So this idea of fake news and propaganda sustaining people politically is very important. King Charles eventually, eventually had to fight fire with fire. He was not very happy doing this, but he allowed the establishment of uh, 
of newspapers. He even employed some of the previous fake news guys on the other side. He paid them all money. They came across to him. In December 1643, one royalist newspaper said that a parliamentary prisoner had skipped going to church on a Sunday because he was having sex with a horse instead. <laughs> some of those newspapers got so popular, they actually got counterfeited on the streets partly by people hoping to make a buck, by selling, saying, oh, this is a copy of the, your favorite newspaper. And then, this is a really meta, some of the time they would try and fake news the fake news. So you'd, you'd, you'd publish fake copies of, like, the New York Times equivalent, but fill it with even more scandalous fakery. And then, I mean, it was just, it, got, it started to, the revolution started to eat its own at that point. But um, forgery was important, and obs obscuring the truth was very important. And as a result, England was plunged into the bloodiest war uh, in its history. Let's come to the 20th century, because I know we've got a First World War theme going on. We, let's talk briefly though about the Second World War. The British government lied to its people during the Second World War, during World War II. They said that when the German supersonic missile, the supersonic rockets, the V2, started landing in London, they said they were, they said they were gas, gas explosions, accidental explosions of gas mains. Um, the British government organized a national savings drive. People could invest their money. They said it was going to munitions. It wasn't. It was just designed to keep inflation down. Not a penny of that was going towards buying munitions. Um, the royal family, God bless them, said they spent every night with the fellow Londoners sleeping in Buckingham Palace. That was not true. They were actually going to their palace a little bit further out of town in Windsor where they would sleep. And sometimes those lies work, but in the short term. This is what I talk about consequences. Uh, David Lloyd George, as you heard, was, is my great-great-grandfather. Very dodgy politician, that one. Uh, and uh, he told the editor of one of Britain's great newspapers in 1917, if the people really knew the truth, the war would be stopped tomorrow. But of course, they don't know and they can't know. In the same way, Churchill admitted in uh, one of his great speeches in May 1940, he wrote that he told people that there had been falsehoods in there, but there would be the time, this was no time for truth. Truth would come later. In the parliamentary debate, he once said, such words as desperate ought not to be used about the position of a battle. Uh, of this kind when they are false. Still less should they be used when they are true. So people lie. Politicians lie. They lie to get themselves out of a fix. But there are consequences. Uh, and I think if you examine the consequences of lies, they might get you out of a short-term problem, but they give you a very, very serious long-term issue. Take, for example, the US government suppressing news of the first battle of Manassas uh, when initial reports said that the, 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 the U.S. government, the U.S. Army had been victorious and the government suppressed subsequent reports saying they'd been defeated. Well, that might work to avoid a panic in the next hours and days following the battle, but you've got, you've got to have a little issue there because you've destroyed your credibility when people realize that, in fact, inevitably, that when they find out that battle hadn't been won. The British government were just as bad. During the little, uh, little skirmish at Lexington, Lexington Concord, very difficult for me to talk about this, obviously. Um, the London Gazette, which was the official organ of the British government at the time, said, a report of having been printed and published of a skirmish between some of the people of the province of Massachusetts Bay and a detachment of His Majesty's troops, it's proper to inform the public that no advices have yet been received of any such event. And during the First World War, a very low point for journalists in the history of their trade, Britain organized very strict censorship. Again, the Guardian wrote, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, our casualties not very heavy. The first day of the offensive is very satisfactory. A slow, continuous, methodical push, sparing in lives. That, my friends, was the single bloodiest day in the history of Britain. 
60,000 people killed or wounded in one day, 20,000 of them killed, uh, and that was the media's report on that. And that stored up huge problems, because one journalist wrote in his diary that, that, that uh, the common soldier was coming to have a greater detestation for the institution of war correspondent even than for his own generals. And that is saying something. The Daily Mail, which I understand you guys have here as well, that wonderful newspaper, um, asked their war correspondent to double down on German atrocities during the First World War. They need to find, they asked them, if necessary, to make up stories to make the Germans look particularly bad. So one, uh, one journalist obliged. He said he'd seen a baby rescued out of a house the Germans had set on fire. Thousands of readers wrote in asking to adopt the baby. The paper hastily announced that the baby had suddenly and mysteriously died of a terribly contagious disease that meant it couldn't even be buried, had to be destroyed. So they couldn't even go visit the grave. And who can forget Mohammed Saeed al-Shahaf, I think known in America as Baghdad Bob, Saddam Hussein's information minister, who thought he'd get himself out of trouble by saying there was no problem, the Iraqi armies were holding out against the Allied advance, when obviously it became a laughing stock and completely undercut whatever legitimacy or whatever belief the Iraqi people had left in their leader. And also, for the military historians out there, of course, I shouldn't just be talking about the media in, in our relationship with the truth. No, 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 nowhere is the truth more important than in military operations. If you are feeding inaccurate reports up to your generals, as often happened during the First World War, men would die as, as a result. If you were inaccurate about the condition of the ground, how muddy it was, the readiness of your troops, the amount of, uh, the amount of artillery preparation they'd done, the state of the enemy's barbed wire, the state of the enemy's defenses, the resilience of the enemy. If you lied about those things and then attacks were ordered on the basis of that information, thousands of young men would be killed or wounded. Uh, and so during the First World War, optimistic reports made commanders issue totally uh, unrealistic orders for attacks. And, and this, is, this one intelligence officer from the First World War really, for me, sums up the importance of truth in that, in, in that, in that context. The keen faces around me, he wrote, drawn with weariness and strain, were the men who were going to base their actions on what I told them. The lives of the men they commanded, and indeed their own, would depend on the accuracy of the information I imparted. It was a chastening discipline, but a stimulating one. It developed in me a relish for establishing the truth, which is an end in itself. And without that truth, you haven't got nothing. Look at the German battle fleet blockaded 100 years ago today, blockaded by the American and British battleships in Wilhelmshaven in northern Germany. They'd been told they'd won the Battle of Jutland. They'd been told they'd defeated the mighty Royal Navy. And yet then they wondered why they were just rotting away in port, obviously still blockaded, and why their families were risking starvation in Germany. Well, that is an example of, of, of lies ending up to, as massively destabilizing because it was that group of sailors who, who led the revolution against Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany and helped to bring, a war, bring the war to a dramatic end and, and led to revolution in, in Germany. So in Iraq, in Imperial Germany, you can see how these lies undermine the legitimacy of a regime and actually can bring about its collapse. Uh, I, on that note, I should say the Soviet Union, Pravda, do you remember the great newspaper of the Soviet Union? Guess what that, that actually means in English? It means truth. And if you're going to call a newspaper full of lies truth, then you can't be surprised when your population don't trust you at all. Another example that I just had on my podcast the other day of, of, of accuracy concerns, you're not going to believe this, guys. Um, Moscow decided to intervene in a U.S. presidential election. 
It thought one candidate would be more hostile to its interests than the other, and it was determined to intervene, try and boost the chances of that other candidate. Now they used, they injected propaganda, fake news, um, forgery into uh, US society. Front organizations, false articles in the press. Ladies and gentlemen, who can forget the presidential election of 1984? A concerted Soviet attempt to interfere with the US election uh, using so-called countermeasures, and it was a complete and utter failure. So, that's great, good stuff. Nothing more to really talk about there, fantastic. Um, <laughs> uh, and that, and as you can see, truth is foundational. Without it, we can't build democracies. And actually, you can't build organizations or families or relationships. Um, I sit on enough museum boards to know that those spreadsheets can be deeply inconvenient. Uh, actual revenue, very inconvenient. Visitor numbers, ugh, tiresomely inconvenient. Website hits. So we cannot thrive as institutions unless we are armed with the truth. We cannot thrive as individuals. Um, I can believe comforting lies about myself. In fact, I often am very tempted to do so. Uh, but I'm only going to thrive if I face the depressing reality of my existence. And without truth, there can be no trust. And there can be no collaboration. And I think one thing I've seen as well, I'm sure you have, is there also can be no healing. We can't make decisions about how to best organize our society, how to best divide up our resources, how to best manage competing interests, unless we are honest about how we got to where we are today. Now, I've talked to, to Maori oral historians about their dispossession by the British. I've talked to uh, Havasupai and Hopi communities in Arizona about their experience at the hands of settlers. I've met people on both sides of the divide in Israel, Palestine, South Africa, Holocaust survivors and perpetrators, Cambodia and Northern Ireland. And what I've really noticed is that there is, an un there is a huge unresolved anger and inability to move forward if the people are denied the truth. The process of healing and rebuilding after conflict can only take place, has to begin with honesty, and honesty about history. Uh, and that's where you guys come in. Uh, that's where your organizations are world leading. Um, when we look at the 1984 election, Congress held hearings. Fantastic. Who knew? Uh, and and, they, and they, uh, they, there was a very simple um, response to Russian countermeasures in 1984. The, the public were told to inquire, to read more newspapers, to broaden their, to broaden their horizons. Um, now imagine that. Uh, in, in, in a German invasion, the German invasion in Britain in 1940, had it happened, there were posters going up all over Britain, and the first line of that poster was, don't believe the rumors, don't spread rumors, don't believe rumors. They will undermine our ability to resist the Germans. Uh, and now imagine if there was a subject that you could teach kids, which taught them to evaluate, to be cynical, not to just listen to the pronouncements of uh, politicians or guys on TV uh, and opinion forms. Well, guys, we, we, you know, we have that subject. We already have it in our hands. It's called history. It's what you guys do every single day. Um, it's literally, history is literally from the Greek, Greek word to inquire. That's the, that's the root of the word. Um, knowledge gained by investigation, historian. Uh, and from the beginning, history has been the enemy of untruth. It's been the enemy of dogma. Uh, I, I love a quote by the editor of the Springfield Republican, a newspaper in the 1860s. He wrote, the brilliant mission of this newspaper is to be the high priest of history, the great enemy of tyrants, 
and the right arm of liberty. Another quote I like about history is that history provides guidance in everyday lives. That's from Cicero. He was right. I mean, I, I, I prefer Cicero's quote about history to Queen Elsa's from Frozen. <laughs> when she sings, you have to excuse my English accent, the past is in the past. What nonsense. The past is clearly not in the past. All you have to do is talk to the people who voted for Brexit because they believe the past is a, a vibrant place that they can return to. Uh, you can talk to the, the foot soldiers of Islamic State who seek to recreate a caliphate that existed 1,500 years ago. Um, history is what legitimizes our claims to other people's territory. History, I'm afraid, Elsa, is certainly not confined to the past. Um, and, and, it's, and, it's, and, and it's hugely important. Mussolini once said, when a historian asked him for permission to enter the Italian archives in 1925, Mussolini said, this is a time for myths not history. Um, I was, I've worked with uh, oh, the Sites of Conscience uh, group, many of, many of them are here today. They told me the story about the Russian museum in the Gulag that's been effectively shut down and, and suppressed because the truth that it's telling power in Russia is too painful, it's too dangerous for the Russian regime to let it continue. Tiananmen Square does still not appear on any of the Chinese search engines uh, in, within, within China. Um, so that's what we're up against, everyone. That's what we're up against. But that's what your sector represents. It represents, it represents the central front in this battle for truth uh, and this battle to create great citizens. And I've been learning a lot about the dynamism of the sector in the US, and I'm incredibly optimistic and excited by what I've learned already. Um, I, I've met, when I've worked, I've, what I've noticed is when I'm doing TV shows or, or podcasts and things, people are extremely engaged with history that gives them insights about the present that talks about fascism, that talks about the rise of the far right in Europe, that talks about migration, that talks about economic collapse. Th that is what people are absolutely obsessed with learning about. And many of your institutions uh, are, are sharing, are, 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 are demonstrating best practice in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that area. Um, they are the projects, they are the programs, they are the books that arm people with knowledge of what has gone before. Um, I've been hearing a lot about the uh, clarity and the, the wonderful uh, changes that have been made to Monticello. I don't know if Monticello's in the room, but um, the, the, the rebuilding, the, the renovations that have gone there, talking honestly about the, the relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, a slave, and yet the mother of his children as well. Uh, and of course, as I've already mentioned, talking to sites of conscience and, and turning memory, turning that history uh, into action and, and activism in the present. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said that time discovers truth, and it strikes me that you guys, that's what you guys do. You're, you're managing that process. You're discovering truth, you're preserving that truth, and you're transmitting that truth. And it's without that truth, we, we don't have any chance. Because without that truth, people will believe anything. Slavery, not so bad. Imperial expansion, Colonite actually really they didn't mind it. They, they kind of enjoyed being taken over. Um, invading Afghanistan, piece of cake. So without truth, we lose that experience gained with such appalling hardship and bloodshed, sweat and tears by our ancestors. Uh, and we also lose the complexity of our own story and the, the chance to learn lessons from it. Without that truth, uh, without that truth, we forget what we're capable of. Going back to May in the Congo, what we're capable of both at our best and our worst. So I want to live in a society where 
we can face the truth about us and what we've done and then plot a way forward. Not one in which we can wrap ourselves in a protective blanket of lies. Basically, I want to live in a society where institutions like yours are prominent, well-resourced, and strong. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Now, I think we've got time for some questions. If anyone fancies, uh, anyone fancies asking a question, I'd be very happy to, uh, to answer it. We've got some mics up there. Someone's coming forward already, straight up. Stepping straight up. All right, thank you very much. That was awesome. Uh, I've been finding more and more fake historic markers. Fake historic markers. There ought to be a law. Where does this fit with Seneca and Tacitus and Thucydides and Herodotus? What, what can we do about fake historic markers? For instance, in Delaware, there's a fake independence hall. That says the Declaration of Independence was signed in this building. It's wow. not <laughs> the real, it's 1964. So the salesmanship of history is at work at that place. But there are many other places who will just put up a fake historic marker on a crap shack building to give it that old timey. So have you encountered this? Do you have a suggestion for what we can do? Because there ought to be a law. Yeah, well, that's a, you know, that's a very interesting question. In England, every single pub in England has a thing saying Winston Churchill and Queen Elizabeth I drank here. Uh, so yeah, fake historic markers, I mean, that's a, that is a very tricky one. You can't vandalize it, I guess. You can't rip it down, although that's one option. Um, I don't have an answer for that. I think, but you know, this is what we're all struggling with because it could be physical. It could be physical, like when you when you w walk up down a street and see that. But the same thing is on Facebook or, or on social media. It could be a digital. Could be a piece. It's whatever piece of content. It's how we kind of develop this kite mark and say something we is something we can trust. But I, all I know is when I can see something coming from a, a, an institution that I ha that I trust, like one of you guys. It feels a lot more real, or from or from National Park Service or National Historic Monuments. I guess, I, I, you know, you're more likely to trust that. I, I, I suppose that brand is is fundamental. Like, I, I, you have to, you, if someone's going to stick a sign up on the wall saying this was the capital of the U.S. for a day when George Washington rested his head there, um, unless it is, unless it's got that kite mark, unless it's got one of your institution's kind of marks on it, I guess I'm not going to believe it. And it's a, then it's a matter of literacy, it's a matter of education, it's a matter of historical literacy, teaching people to question everything they can see uh, and everything they can read. But this is a huge challenge for us all at the moment, and it doesn't matter if it's a physical marker or it's in a newspaper article, whatever it is, um, it's got to, uh, we've got to teach people to question, check, Google a couple of sources before they, uh, before they believe it. Uh, Reverend Barnett, Tacoma, Washington. I've been a fan of yours ever since Battlefield Britain, which you did with your father. But it seemed to me that he was very triumphalist and that in your later work, you have become much more nuanced, much more ready to see some of the downsides. How is it that you develop this greater degree of skepticism and perhaps, therefore, a little bit closer to the truth? That's, that's interesting. I mean, my, um, I, we're not recording this, are we? <laughs> my, uh, my dad was a, 
My dad's the product of, of the last generation of school children, school boys, because obviously he was educated in a violent, brutal English boarding school where they did not see their parents for 10 years at a time and subjected to all kind of traumatic behavior. Uh, that's what the empire required of its young men. Um, so he was that last generation, and I think he imbibed the stories of history uh, from, from a different era. The, his textbooks were Edwardian. They were, they were uh, profoundly, we would now consider them simplified, racist, hagiographic, you, know, you, you name it. Um, and I guess I am from a generation where that where the training, historical training has been a bit different. Um, I do think, you know, we are negative at the moment about social media. We're, we're talking a lot about um, you know, adolescent mental health and, and, and its very real consequences there. But I would say that social media has exposed me to a lot more differing viewpoints than, than someone in a generation previous. I follow organizations here in, in the US, which as a white British man, I could never have expected to have a familiarity with 30, 40 years ago. So I think that it's differing interpretations of the past, being exposed to uh, work by people of color, over here scholars of color, in, in institutions that I would not have previously visited before, which are now on my radar because they're coming up on my Twitter feed or through organizations like this. So I think it's helped give me a more nuanced view. Um, and so I just a little, little shout out there for, for social media. If you follow, the, if you organize your news feed in a way that is helpful and, and, and uh, promotes wellness and, 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 uh, and you know, exploration, I think it can be, can be very powerful. Thank you for your question. Um, thank you for watching that old show as well. Anybody else here? Step up for my, I know it's early everybody. I, I, for me it's like lunchtime, so I'm firing all cylinders. <laughs> I think that's why they booked me. Yeah, I appreciate David's uh, question about, uh, about markers that, that, are, that are false. And we're dealing with, with issues about controversial monuments across the South. There are a number of monuments that are fake, if you will. And what I'd like to know is, are there ways to use those as opportunities to, you mentioned, to teach? to bring people together to have conversations, difficult conversations, and you know of any places that are doing just that so that people of differing points of view can come together in a civil manner to discuss history? Well, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, absolutely, that's the, that's the dream. And I think if you, if you look at the country, I mean, I, I, when I, I've been in South Africa and I filmed with people that have taken part in the truth and reconciliation process over there and in Northern Ireland, I really do mean that the, the first the beginning, and my wife is a criminal justice campaign in the UK, and there's something in, in which we call in the UK restorative justice, and I'm not sure what, it, what it's called here. Uh, and, and the first step towards healing and, and recovery is, is, conf is confronting what, what has happened. Uh, and you cannot have a conversation about how you're going to memorialize the slavery or, or genocide or internment in Northern Ireland, for example, unless you have people talking and sharing their experiences. and, and, and trying to work out a, a shared vocabulary and a shared understanding. Uh, and so if history is a place that brings us together, um, if, if, if then, then, then it, it has to be that. And again, that's what your organizations do, and I've been following some of the, 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 the exhibitions you've been doing that are remarkable, uh, I, and, and there's some wonderful examples in the UK as well, which is bringing people in from, uh, we, recently in the UK we've been doing a lot around migration, and, and museums have been doing extraordinary work around Migration and the experience of people coming into Britain and the experience of Britons who found themselves suddenly living with 
uh, uh, different people as their next door neighbors or whatever. And I think it's, it, that is the first, it's a hugely important step. Yes, sir. Then in your remarks, you made some comment about um, how people are receptive to uh, stories of history. So you use, you've been in a traditional media, BBC, Canadian Broadcasting and so on, but you've now really stepped out into non-traditional uh, media distribution channels for which there are many choices. So it's not like you have to watch BBC One or BBC Two anymore. So talk to, I'd like for you to reflect for a few more minutes about um, what is it that you found that really resonates with people? You said that there's this connection between their contemporary experience and moments in history. What, what, what are the things which are resonating and how do, you, how do you make those linkages? People love World War II. <laughs> no, they, they, people, people love World War II. But apart from World War II, what, and they love the Tudors in the UK. I don't know how you guys are with the Tudors here, but in the UK for some reason, you stick Henry VIII on anything, it's gonna, it's gonna fly. No, um, so what, the, the real excitement to me, I should say, my parents are journalists, my parents are both journalists. And I, so my love of history is rooted in kitchen table conversations in which my mum and dad would be talking about apartheid South Africa. They'd be talking about Israel-Palestine. They'd be talking about Reagan's bombing of Libya in the, in the 80s. Uh, they'd be talking about Northern Ireland. And their jobs were, were to go to those places, stay alive, and understand what was going on there. So uh, for them, a knowledge of history, like for, like, for like for members of the military, a knowledge of history is not just like an amusing pastime, uh, put your feet up and, and read a giant, uh, a, you know, a giant biography of one of the founding fathers. That, history is utilitarian. His, history has a, a very serious purpose, which is you cannot understand the labor disputes of Thatcherite Britain. You cannot understand, uh, you cannot understand you know, uh, his, Hispanic mig uh, migration across the border from Mexico into, into the, the southwest or into Texas without understanding the past and, and where those, where those situations, the, the history of those situations. So I, my passion has always been, but working at the BBC there was a reluctance because in traditional media there is, and I'm sure you've come across this when you're talking to some of the people on your board who are a little less, who are a bit more traditional, don't quite understand what the heck you're trying to do with your organizations. Um, but there is an understanding that history should be in this kind of chocolate box over here and it's stories and it's narrative and, it's, and it's, a, it's a safe space in the past where we can enjoy funny costumes and nice pictures, right? Uh, and I was, and, and the BBC pushed me towards a lot of those kind of programs, just walking around castles, talking about castles or, or, or celebrating hero heroism during the Second World War. And I said, no, I want to exist in between history here and news there. I want to live, I sound like Al Pacino in any given Sunday, I want to live in this zone here, which is taking these current events that people are talking about and thinking about and obsessing about, and then, and then injecting the history into those. And so, and, and br branching out by myself, starting a podcast, now starting a TV channel, which is a posh word for a website. <laughs> um, but do, doing that has allowed me to start commissioning out myself. And I have re realized, particularly now, in today's world, that every time, I, if I put an episode out on the Crimean War and the Charge of the Light Brigade, 50,000 people listen to it, that's fine. If I put an episode out like, what were the founding fathers thinking about when they designed the impeachment tool? Um, what happened in the, the, the with, with uh, Texan independent, like, you know, in, in, a, in a week where we're talking about issues on the, on the border and, and, uh, and uh, separation of families, you know, the history of migration into, into the US. Those episodes go bananas. 
And for me, that's the dream. And I think that's why I have so much in common with you guys, because you are, you are saying, this is the past, but this, the past is not in the past. So again, Queen Elsa, not just nowhere near it. Uh, the past is something that continues to inform everything that's going on in our society at the moment. Uh, and, and without an understanding of it, and without exploring and sharing it, we've got no chance of understanding this. So, so that's been the great privilege and excitement. And the great thing about non-traditional, you had a very grand way of saying that, channels, non-traditional, exactly whatever he just said, it's brilliant, um, is that you don't have to just be big in one small territory. So I've got listeners all over the world, so I can afford to just, I don't have to find a million people in the UK and, a million, and two million people in the States. I can just find three million people right across the world who are interested in this stuff. And that's what's so rewarding and exciting, because collectively across the world and the whole of humanity, you're going to find enough geeks out there that want to know this stuff. So, so that's been the great advantage and, and, the, and the great excitement of what, of what I'm, I'm trying to do at the moment. Go for it, sir. I'm very interested in uh, hidden history stories and like to get your take. Uh, I was in London in the summer of 2017, and it was the year of LGBTQ history in England. Exhibitions of the Tate, uh, the National Library, the National Trust is now interpreting uh, with their guidebook, Prejudice and Pride, uh, all of their historic sites, and not just the sites, but the founders of the trust, many of which were queer. I'm just curious on your take how that went over in Britain. There were shows every night on TV, dramatizations of LGBTQ history, and how you felt, if you know, how that was, uh, what the take was in England, and what you might be able to say about that. Well, I, it's interesting you raise that. I mean, I, me and many other members of the, uh, the sort of community were um, astonished by how well that went. And I mean, for those of you who don't know, the National Trust in Britain is the largest membership organization in the UK. It, so it preserves historic houses, uh, actually landscape, uh, and, and giant old houses where the families can't afford them anymore. They take them on and they, they preserve them and they're protected by statute so that they cannot develop, sell, divide or, or in any way destroy these, these assets they hold without a specific act of parliament that allows them to do that for each, each action they take. So it is, it is preserving the past for everyone, forever. It's the most remarkable. It's one of the things that makes me proud to be British. On those dark nights of the soul, when the Brexit negotiations such as they are are going particularly badly, I think well, we've always got the National Trust. And so for that organization, which is also quite quaint, it's very white, it's very old, um, its membership and nostalgic. I think it's fair to say the people often are me members of it because they're trying to preserve a vision of the UK that, that existed once, perhaps in a, in a rose-tinted past. For them to accept as, as broadly as they did that that agenda was amazing, and that those projects went really well. And in fact, if anything, they went almost unremarked. Like it was so uncontroversial that it was almost unremarked upon. Um, and, and I think that that is an example of how in just two generations you can just 180 degrees. I mean, there's people still alive today that were imprisoned for the crime of homosexuality in the UK. And, and now some of our biggest institutions, the BBC, our museums, our National Trust, are, have showcases celebrating queer history. So, remarkable. Thanks. I think we've got time, you lucky things. But we've got one more question, if anyone wants. Are we done? I've answered everything. Okay, enjoy the rest of the... Oh, hang on, we've got one more, wait. I have a question for him. Actually, I wanted to let everyone know that Dan has graciously agreed to participate in a session later on today from 1.45 to 3, Broadcast Yourself is the title of the session. 
and it's about generation, generating engaging content. It's more practical. Do you, do you want to promote it or talk about okay. no. tips for? Here we go. Uh, yeah, so for, for those of you who'd like to pick up on some of the, less, the actual hard lessons and, and things that, that I've, I've done and worked with museums to do and making things go viral or usually not making things go viral, then it would be lovely to see you at that session and we'll be, it's more of a roll your sleeves up kind of approach to, to um, platforms and, and lessons and learnings and, and, all that, and all that kind of stuff. I'm happy to share, uh, you know, the, the down and dirty facts and details and numbers with you this afternoon. So uh, yeah, it'd be good to see you there, thank you. Oh, okay, here we go, oh yes. Um, the, the call for one last question. I wanted to know, a lot of your examples um, that you provided in your talk about how history can bring truth were written examples. Um, a lot of us represent historic sites. Um, thinking about your background, going to historic sites as a child and doing that work now. Um, what advice can you give to those of us working on historic sites, how we bring truth um, through our interpretation of place? Well, I think uh, the, the advice I have on, on, for those of you who want to just bring truth, I think it's, it's, it's the ways that we all know. I think it's, it's engaging, thought-provoking, questioning. Uh, I, I, like, I think it's, it's um, not getting blinded by tech. I think it's a, people really value those human interactions. Um, I, I, I look at my kids, I look at, you know, this is very anecdotal, I'm afraid, lots of this, I, but uh, I, I look at the way my friends and family, when I go around museums, they really engage with the, with the people still. Um, despite my dreams of, of bringing augmented reality and phones and videos into museums, where I've tried all that stuff, it does, it's amazing how, I think, trust can still come from somebody, a, a, a personal engagement with, with another person, I think, that's really remarkable. Um, and I think, uh, I think an acknowledgement by the museum that it, this is maybe not the history you've heard before, um, that this is, these are, uh, and what I also enjoy, uh, look at thinking about the Imperial War Museum in London at the moment, it's offering two different interpretations and, and asking, the, giving the, crediting the audience with the sophistication of saying, uh, you know, why don't you, what do you think? Why don't you evaluate this? Um, and I really like that approach as well. Um, and, you go, and you know, you look at Thomas Jefferson, you go, great man, Slave owner. What are you going to do? You know, and, and that's and that's history, and and because that unlocks something within all of us, because we all know that we're not one-dimensional, good and bad. We all know that we're a crazy, jumbled, heterodox cocktail of the good and the bad. And I think that when museums uh, tr trust their audiences and and just ask them to remember that the past was like the present in that respect, then I think that the audiences res can respond really well. But um, that's a, you know, a, a, key, a key question, and um, I'm going to think of a really good answer later and then come and find you. <laughs> Thank you, Dan, for offering an international perspective. <laughs> he will be available, I guess, for a few minutes right now if you have questions afterwards. Afterwards, just come up front. Two brief announcements. If, you're, if this is your first AASLH conference, we really welcome you. And we hope that you will stop by. There's a reception for first-time attenders. Um, right after this, you can look where it is in your conference program. Second announcement is pop-up roundtables. We're looking for ideas. If you have an idea for that you'd like to talk about with some people here, um, they, you can go to the registration area, they're soliciting um, your ideas there. 
um, before 3.30 today, and then you can vote on which sessions you would like to attend or, or go to. So the winners will be announced, I think, by 6 today via Twitter or at the registration board. If I'm wrong about any of that, could someone correct me? Okay, got it right. So don't forget the pop-up sessions. They're often very interesting. So thank you very much. Enjoy the conference. Thank you. <laughs>